welcome to Rising. We have another terrific show for you this week to start off things on this Monday. Katie Halper is here with me filling in. So nice to see you, Katie. Thank you, you too. So let's tell them what's on deck. So today on the show, my colleague and journalist Aaron Mate will join us to discuss some new updates on Ukraine. And we have a very special guest to discuss the protesters killed in Iran over the death of Masha Amini. But before we dive into that, the Federal Reserve and Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, well, they're finally speaking candidly on the possibility of a recession. After Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen repeatedly downplayed inflation back in 2021, Powell is now finally admitting that he doesn't know what will happen to the economy. Speaking to reporters late last week, Powell said, quote, no one knows whether this process will lead to a recession or, if so, how significant that recession would be. So, you know, we talk a lot on the show about experts, uh, the the limits of the expert class, right. uh, the elite class and what they say. Technocracy. You know, with, right. With, with respect, not just hypocrisy, but the actual the limits. The te- right. Yeah. Yes. The technocracy. Uh, in terms of COVID, um, in terms of foreign policy, you know, the tremendous consensus that we always have to do something right. mil- uh, military-wise. Um, I think that same skepticism that you and I and so many of the people we feature on this show, you know, voices that are skeptical of what whatever you want to call it, the regime, the deep state, et cetera, have to say on all these subjects, um, you know, that's, is that skepticism, that skepticism should be warranted as well for the financial experts, right? For the, for the Powells and the Yellens, et cetera? Yeah, I, I definitely think that's, that that's an appropriate response. And we see that, um, you know, whether or not they call something a recession seems to be very politicized. I mean, mm-hmm. as is all of what the Fed does. Honestly. Right. They act like they're above it, that right. they're not that involved they're, in yes, it. Yes. Right. That they're apolitical, that mm-hmm. they're postpartisan, that they are objective, non-ideological. But that's not true. Yeah, it's not. Not true at all. I would argue that they do Wall Street's bidding. You and I may disagree <laughs> over that. But, well, yeah. I don't know that I, I, I don't know that I, no, I, I don't well, maybe disagree Maybe we do agree. Maybe look we do that. agree. I, they, uh, look, they're, they're looking out for certain interests. Yes. Um, you know, I want, I, want a, I want a free market economy. I want less regulation. I want less of collusion between government and big business. Yes, I, I know, I, like I mean, and, but I agree with many of my friends on the left that often um, big government does do the bidding of, of the corporate world, right. of the most powerful voices in the corporate world, because that's who is in a position to influence them. Sure. So right. it is, it, yeah, it's absolutely something to this worry about. This is like about. a kumbaya moment for us. <laughs> we do have them on the show no, sometimes, yeah, yeah, even yeah. me and Brianna. Yeah, even <laughs> Not all that often, yeah, but sometimes. Yeah. Well, it seems Americans are taking note of the record inflation. A new Washington Post ABC News poll found that most Democrats and independents don't want Biden to be the Democratic nominee for 2024. Biden receiving his lowest marks on handling of the economy. The poll also found that only 39% of Americans approve of Biden's job performance, while 53% disapprove. On the economy, he's at a dismal 36% approval rating, while 57% disapprove of how he has handled the economy. Even former, press sec- even former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the quiet part out loud on MSNBC. If it is a referendum on the president, they will lose, and they know that. They also know that crime is a huge vulnerability for Democrats. I would say one of the biggest vulnerabilities. So nice to see Jen Psaki again. I know I missed her. I do miss her. She was a. She was a. Look, it, it sounds to me she was a better press secretary. I think than she definitely was more condescending, but she seemed yeah. much more in control. She treats the press the way they deserve to be treated. I guess uh, that and, is, and by yeah, they yeah. I mean we. We're in right, the press, right. But, you, you're yeah. a masochist. Yeah. You, you like the contempt <laughs> and condescension. Yeah. She seems. I mean, yeah. I mean, Karine Jean Pierre just seems 
kind of unprepared on a day-to-day -day yeah. basis. Very smiley, though. Unlike, um, um, that's a big difference between them is their aesthetic, like their style of interacting with people. Right. Um, uh, so as to the question of Biden running again, I, I don't know. What do you make of that? I continue to think, like, they, people will say, yeah, we don't want Biden to run again. But, that, but what's the alternative? Right. There's no one who is liked better. Apparently now we're supposed to accept that Gavin Newsom is going to cr declare himself, crown himself um, the next Democratic front row, which I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I don't live in California, right. so I guess I'm, I'm only familiar with Gavin Newsom's policies from afar. They seem to have, you know, their liberal Democratic policies that I don't like. Yeah. But, but also but, with, speaking of smug condescension, yes. isn't that he's just like what he a par I mean, he's a parody of, yeah. I think, what uh, the right hates about the left. But also, uh, for us on the left, you know, he's not that progressive. Right. He's, he talks the talk, but he vetoed, he said he vetoed something for workers' rights that, uh, like, the same day he and his partner, not, not romantic partner, but a business partner, bought this huge vineyard. It was like you couldn't make it up, you know? Right. It's, it's virtue, virtue signaling rhetoric. And then, I mean, what much of a national audience knows him for is militantly strict COVID yeah. regulations that he himself infamously did not follow right. with the, the French Laundry. I always forget the name of the restaurant. I think that's what it was called. I don't called. remember. I think I blocked it out. <laughs> yeah. So I don't see why. Uh, I, I don't a see. A lot of gel. I feel like he's known for a lot of gel. He's not, well, they say he has good hair, I guess. Yes. I, he has, it's sort of like an 80s hairstyle. Yeah, to me, yeah. But, um, it is a little villainous. I'll never knock, I'll never knock another man's no, you can, crazy yeah, hairstyle, yeah, yeah. That's on obviously. Me. That was my, my statement. Okay. I, I took it off. Yeah, uh, we do know, we do know uh, no gender-based the physical appearance. Shaming, no, but maybe obviously. actually this is like reparations for me to talk about a man's appearance. <laughs> so you're welcome. You're welcome, everyone. Okay. Well, though Biden continues to tout his economic accomplishments, including the American Rescue Plan, his message is falling on deaf ears as Americans grapple with record inflation, according to Politico. Global markets have shaken up Wall Street with both the Dow Jones and the S&P 500 nearing their weakest levels of the year, not to mention the Fed's pledge to continue to raise interest rates could throw millions out of work. But Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, defended the president's economic accomplishments. Let's watch. It's easy to forget that when Joe Biden came to office, we turn on the TV at night, people were in line uh, in football stadiums waiting for a box of food. The unemployment rate was nearly 10 percent. We had 20 million people out, out of work and, uh, and businesses closed and schools closed. So we needed an economic response that addressed that. But the president also ran on a promise to build back better and to see that at the other end of getting over this immediate crisis, we build the kind of economy that he likes to say from the bottom up and the middle out. Right. I think the problem, though, with that uh, way of describing the situation, look, businesses were closed, schools were closed, people were out of work, not because things hadn't been good, because of the pandemic, because right. of a once in a century uh, crisis, right. not, you know, not of our making or <laughs> some theories, right. yeah, not, yeah. not of yeah. generally people's yeah. making, perhaps of some scientists meddling in the how they shouldn't have. But that aside, you know, this happened and then these these policies were done. But before the pandemic, I would argue, and, and, and most people, you could look at polls, most people felt very strongly about how the economy was performing under, under former President mm. Trump. People were quite happy with the economic position they found themselves in, with employment, with, uh, even with, with wages, even with things like that. There was general content, uh, a feeling of content uh, about how things were, which is why Donald Trump, we have to remember, despite all of his myriad personal flaws and personal behavior that that irks so many people right. 
he was looking like he was going to be reelected. If, if he was up against anyone but that. Joe Biden, I think he probably would have been reelected. And he, he was looking strong until the pandemic ruined everything because people were happy with the economy. So when people like Ron Klain talk about, oh, it was, you know, it's broken, we had to fix it. Well, you have to fix, it, it got broken because of the pandemic, had yeah. to fix that. But before that, it was working for a lot of people. And I know not everyone feels that way, right. but if you looked at the polls, broadly there was support for how things were under Trump economically. Yeah, I mean, I know that he did, uh, it was the, one of the biggest like upward transfers of wealth under Trump, but I think that people, maybe a lot of people didn't perceive that they were hurting, or certainly mm -hmm. it wasn't in the discourse as much as it is now. And of course, inflation is always discussed, understandably. Um, but even the way we talk about it, you know, there could be more of an emphasis on, on, on unemployment. But I do think that Biden and Klain are trying to claim credit for just the natural recovery from COVID, yes. as if it's stuff that they put into place, as opposed to what it is, which is kind of a getting back to normal. Now, there's a whole discussion to be had over whether we should be getting back to normal in some areas, and is COVID really over, and Biden said it was, and then walk that back. You guys have talked about this. But I do think that it is an attempt to take credit for something that was going to sort itself out to some extent. Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. You can't, they're, they're taking, they're putting it in the wind column right. that they, we got back, we've sort of gotten back in many respects to where we were before this thing happened. Right. Which is, which is like, right. anyone was going to, yes. uh, if we were, we're going to reopen businesses, we're going to allow people to work again, yeah. things were going to improve somewhat. Right. And now you can't get like a K95 mask because <laughs> of COVID is over. So yeah. that's not a good thing, Biden. Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, I think the pandemic should be over. Obviously, it's it's still sad that people are still dying. Right. You know, whatever uh, can be done for people who perceive themselves to still be at risk, I support them taking yeah. whatever precautions they want to take. Um, I'm going to get my uh, my uh, booster uh, tomorrow. You. Yeah, oh my yeah, God. yeah. I'm, I'm not afraid to Canceled. say it. Yeah. No, I'm going to get it. I am. Look, I'm prone. People know from watching the show, I'm prone to respiratory illnesses. Yeah. Been ill half the summer, so I'm going to get it. Um, I don't think it should be required for anyone. If anybody else wants Definitely to make a different not. choice, absolutely fine. Um, but my calculation is I'm going to get it um, because not, not because I think it's going to stop me from getting COVID. We know that that right. doesn't work but that way, but Ill. I would rather get, I'd rather get COVID and be sick for like a day than right. get COVID and be sick for like a week. Yeah. Um, the audience doesn't want to watch me, yeah. you know, coughing all over Brianna. She doesn't like that yeah. either. So you should uh, do, you should <laughs> TikTok yourself getting the vaccine. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Maybe a, maybe a selfie, maybe an arm selfie. Oh yeah. That'd yeah. Be great. Okay, we have our radars coming up next. Stay with us. Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, I'm happy to tell you about a classic cancel culture dilemma. Jihad Rehab is a documentary by Meg Smaker, who's a former firefighter, moved from California to Yemen and then to Saudi Arabia following the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks. Subsequent to its inclusion at the January 2022 Sundance Film Festival, both the film and the filmmaker have become pariahs in elite film circles, mostly because Smaker, a white woman, dared to make a movie about the experience of Islamic men. Film critics warned that conservatives might bridle at these human portraits, notes the New York Times in a recent, much-discussed article about Jihad Rehab's cancellation. But attacks would come from the left, not from the right. 
So the film centers on four men who were accused of terrorism, imprisoned at Guantanamo Bay, and later sent to a rehabilitation center in Riyadh. The center's purpose is ostensibly to de-radicalize and reintegrate its involuntary participants. The New York Times describes it as spanning an unlikely distance between prison and a boutique hotel. So this sounds like a fascinating subject to me for a documentary. According to several favorable reviews, the film forces audience to reckon with the humanity of its subjects, even if they were accused of terrible crimes. Quote, the absence of absolutes is what's most enriching in Meg Smaker's new documentary, wrote The Guardian. What follows is a heady plunge into restorative justice, mind control, and cultural conditioning. This is a movie for intelligent people looking to have their preconceived notions challenged. Listen to that. It bears repeating, but the expectation from Smaker, the, film, the filmmaker, Smaker, was that if anyone would find the film offensive, it was actually going to be a sort of self-described patriotic conservative who is disinclined to empathize with alleged jihadists, even those who were arrested while underage, maintained their innocence, and were subject to torture, let's be frank, at Guantanamo Bay. But conservatives aren't canceling jihad rehab. Liberals are. Quote, the bottom line is such, wrote Jude Shahab, a Lebanese filmmaker, in a review of Jihad Rehab that criticized Sundance for daring to feature the film. She writes, when I, a practicing Muslim woman, say that this film is problematic, my voice should be stronger than a white woman saying that it isn't point blank. Indeed, this was the visceral component of the torrent of criticism that has greeted Smaker. She is a white woman crea uh, creating a film about a religion and a culture not her own. That she has lived in the Middle East for years, enmeshed herself in the culture, learned the language, and gained unprecedented access to people we would be better off trying to understand apparently makes little difference. Quote, as an alumnus of the festival and recipient of a grant from the Sundance Institute documentary program, I am deeply disheartened, wrote Asia Bundawi, another critic. It is fine, of course, for people who dislike a film to criticize it. Cancel culture does not mean, let's be clear, merely when an, one artist critiquing the work of another artist. The controversy surrounding Jihad Rehab, as the New York Times tells it, this is on another level. This is not that. Quote, more than 230 filmmakers signed a letter denouncing the documentary. A majority have not seen it. The letter noted that over 20 years, Sundance has programmed 76 films about Muslims and the Middle East. Only 35% of them have been directed by Muslim or Arab filmmakers. That's still a substantial number, but not enough for the signers of this petition. Now, the Times notes that the South by Southwest and San Francisco festivals canceled plans to screen this documentary after that letter. But no one did more damage to Jihad Rehab than Abigail Disney, a filmmaker and member of the Walt Disney family, who served as an executive producer for the film. She initially described it in excited terms as freaking brilliant. Then she changed course due to this criticism, penning an open letter of apology. Let me read you some of it. I may not be in total agreement with every criticism of the film, but that does not obviate my responsibility to earnestly own the damage I had a hand in, she wrote. I call upon my colleagues now, whether you are gatekeepers, funders, curators, heads of institutions, agents, buyers, critics, or other filmmakers, to rethink how we all behave when we are called out for our failures and our shortcomings. The letter, which ironically reads like the transcript of a hostage video, expressed Disney's commitment to, quote, not creating any more pain, if only by accident or in ignorance. She apologizes for causing trauma and says that her mistakes are myriad, so I will not be able to claim them all in a single list. But I will try. 
Disney, the apology letter, addressed the other major criticism aimed at jihad rehab, which is that Smaker's interview practices are unethical, given that the men are unwilling participants in the center's rehabilitation program. They're compelled to be there, thus cannot give consent to be interviewed. Quote, I should have pushed back on the idea that the protagonist consented to appear in the film, wrote Disney. A person cannot freely consent to anything in a carceral system, particularly one in a notoriously violent dictatorship. That's deeply unpersuasive. I'm sorry, it just is. For one thing, Smaker attempted to speak with 150 different detainees. Only four of them agreed to talk. If the other 146 said no, I think it's reasonable to say that the four who said yes did so with some amount of self-determination. It's also standard practice for journalists to interview inmates who are incarcerated in prisons. There's no generally accepted journalistic convention that such reporting is unethical or that you were just going to ignore it because that happens to be the case. Nor is it wrong for a person of a certain gender or ethnicity to attempt, obviously, to understand, depict, explain, and create art about a foreign group. There's a major difference between empowering voices from marginalized communities to tell their own stories, that's a good thing, and shutting down good faith efforts like this film's efforts. Los Angeles Times film critique Lauren Ali expertly highlights this distinction, writing that a film losing its shot at an audience over such a controversy doesn't encourage critical thinking about images of Muslims, it throttles it. Quite right. It's natural for works of storytelling that engage with weighty political themes to provoke wildly discordant reactions among audiences. And if Jihad Rehab had merely irked some especially sensitive viewers, this issue wouldn't be worth mentioning. But there is an active effort underway, not merely to criticize this kind of art, but to banish it from elite discourse. Notice well the psychologizing on display. Smaker is accused of causing harm, anger, trauma. These terms are spreading insidiously and ought to be scrutinized by all who value actual diversity and actual mental health. What we call ev everything is traumatizing, everything is harmful, etc. And look, I have not seen this film either. I would like to see it. Maybe I would not agree with all the choices made in it. Sure. I don't know. But I, I think I found it so interesting. The expectation, I totally get the expectation, right, would be conservative saying how dare you know it. these people are animals, they're monsters, they they deserve to be locked away. That's not the criticism. The criticism has been from the other direction. Am I allowed to use the word that's like a donkey? Uh, ass. No? Yeah. You can call them, you say ass, yes. But it's not about a donkey. Uh, that's all we're going to say. All right. How <laughs> far up your own donkey do you need to be to think that the trauma and yeah. pain that's relevant in a discussion about this movie, which depicts the torture of men. Right and depicts Islamophobia, if you think the pain and harm that's relevant in this discussion is to people watching the film who feel like a white woman doesn't have the right to tell the story, first of all, if you want to play the identity politics game, okay, how about she's depicting some white treatment, overwhelmingly white treatment of people of color? Is she not supposed to do that? I mean, that's not even right, the no, point, but let's go there, yeah, right? Yeah, and also, yeah. do you want these stories not to be told? Is that what's more important for you? If you care about this stuff, if you care about Islamophobia, if you care about the torture of people, the war on terror, you want these movies to be made. And yeah, okay, fine. I'll get I'll listen to what a woman of color says about this and I'll 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 get that that's informed by her experience. But you know, there are going to be people out there of Muslim descent, Islamic descent, Middle Eastern descent who are going to like this movie. So what about them? Do their voices not count or we're supposed to listen to some brown people but not others? Like, exactly. Exactly. And it's so, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Like, what if 
it, like take it to its logical conclusion, then we're all okay. We're only confined to telling stories about our right. own very narrow yeah. range of like gender yes, or racial. I, yeah, right. view. Like I can only make documentaries <laughs> about secular Jewish New Yorker left-leaning women. Yeah, I'm, I'm the only one allowed to weigh in on um, Italian culture, yeah. um, etc. Like it's so stupid. It's just so stupid because it's like of all the things. This is a documentary that all the people complaining ostensibly would celebrate because it exposes the very racism and erasure that they claim to care about. Just have some humility and let a story be told that actually speaks to the values that you claim to champion. Right, right. It's, uh, it's, so I wanted to highlight this. And again, I would not, I would not highlight it if it was just being criticized you know, in normal, like, I don't sure. like this thing about this movie. That's fine. But they are trying to stop it from being shown, from being aired in film festivals yeah. because of the harm and the trauma. Yeah, and what, what Disney, Abigail Disney somehow didn't realize this before. I mean, it's such a, it's such it's, an old story of, you know, person says something's great, then, oh, wow, it's problematic for me to say it's great, so I'm going to pull it, I'm going to walk it back. Yeah. But yeah. seriously, God forbid leftists, okay? And I know I'm, I know I'm white, but why don't we celebrate the fact that this documentary by a white person is actually going, uh, like, indicting white people for their t war on terror. Right, the U.S. About, government. Yes. Right, yeah. yeah, the U.S. government. And, you know, it was largely, obviously, like Dick Cheney was the architect of this. White dude. Right. I just think these Only a Cheney is allowed to make a movie like yeah, that. Yeah, right? only a, a P -O if, if, uh, POC, yeah. a, a person of Cheney. <laughs> yeah. All right, we'll leave it there. Looking forward to your radar coming up next. Thanks. Katie, what's on your radar? Well, Representative Rashida Tlaib has been condemned by some over comments she made about Israel. Here's CNN's Jake Tapper reporting on what the Michigan Democrat said and the response it prompted. When our politics lead Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan facing criticism today from what several of her Jewish colleagues have deemed anti-Semitic comments. Here's what Tlaib, the first Palestinian American woman to serve in Congress, said at a virtual event yesterday. I want you all to know that among progressives, it has become clear that you cannot claim to hold progressive values, yet back Israel's apartheid government, and we will continue to push back and not accept this idea that you are progressive, progressive except for Palestine any longer. The CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, slammed the comments, saying that Israel does not have an apartheid government and said that she should not be imposing a, quote, litmus test in a tweet, saying, quote, Tlaib tells American Jews that they need to pass an anti-Zionist litmus test to participate in progressive space. Some of Tlaib's Jewish colleagues in Congress agreed. Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz called her comments, quote, outrageous and, quote, nothing short of anti-Semitic. New York Democratic Congressman Jerry Nadler, sometimes called the Dean, of the informal House Jewish Caucus tweeted, quote, I fundamentally reject the notion that one cannot support Israel's right to exist as a Jewish and democratic state and be a progressive, unquote. Debbie Wasserman Schultz is right. It is outrageous. It's outrageous that Rashida Tlaib is getting attacked. Tlaib is merely stating that Israel is an apartheid state and that people who claim to have progressive values cannot support an apartheid state. 
No matter how loose a definition of progressive we use, it certainly excludes supporting a racist apartheid system. What's outrageous is attacking Tlaib for pointing out that progressive except for Palestine is an intrinsically contradictory position. What's also outrageous is that the Anti-Defamation League's Jonathan Greenblatt would claim that Israel's not an apartheid government. What's outrageous is that Jake Tapper would accept Greenblatt's judgment as the truth and not as a lie that needed to be pushed back against. I understand that Greenblatt, and perhaps Tapper, feel like Israel is not an apartheid state, but unfortunately for them, apartheid isn't about your feelings. It's about facts. In 1973, the UN defined the crime of apartheid as any inhuman acts committed for the purpose of establishing and maintaining domination by one racial group of persons over any other racial group of persons and systematically oppressing them. In 1998, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court defined apartheid as an inhumane act of char character that are committed in the context of an institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group or groups and committed with the intention of maintaining that regime. These inhuman acts include, among others, infliction upon the member of a racial group or groups of serious bodily or mental harm by the infringement of their freedom or dignity, or by subjecting them to torture or to cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment by arbitrary arrest and illegal imprisonment of the members of a racial group or groups. Any legislative measures and other measures calculated to prevent a racial group or groups from participation in the political, social, economic, and cultural life of the country and the deliberate creation of conditions preventing the full development of such a group or groups, in particular by denying to members of a racial group or groups basic human rights and freedoms, including the right to leave and return to their country, the right to a nationality, the right to freedom of movement and residence, the right to freedom of opinion and expression, and the right to freedom of peaceful assembly and association. Encourage Jake Tapper to look this up sometime. Here are a few examples of Israel's apartheid policies. The law of return of 1950 allows any Jew, which means anyone with one Jewish grandparent, the right to move to Israel and automatically become citizens of Israel. It gives their spouses that right too, even if they're not Jewish. Palestinians, of course, lack that right. The Israeli citizenship law of 1952 deprived Palestinian refugees and their descendants of legal status, the right to return, and all other rights in their homeland. It also defined Palestinians present in Israel as Israeli citizens without a nationality and group rights. These laws together obviously fit into the International Criminal Court's apartheid criteria. The Israeli laws prohibit members of a racial group the right to leave and to return to their country, the right to a nationality, the right to freedom of movement and residence. The Citizenship and Entry into Israel Law of 2003, which was reauthorized in March of this year, bars most Palestinians who marry Israelis from receiving permits to live with their spouses in Israel. More recently, the controversial nation-state law established that the fulfillment of the right of national self-determination in the state of Israel is unique to the Jewish people. It demoted Arabic from an official language to a language with special status, and it also stipulated that the state views Jewish settlement as a national value and will labor to encourage and promote its establishment and development. These are just some of the reasons that human rights organizations have declared Israel an apartheid state. Al-Haq al-Mazan's Center for Human Rights, Adala, the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel, Adamir, Prisoner Support, and Human Rights Association, 
Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have all documented Israeli policies enacting apartheid policies. Israel's only human rights organization, Beth Selim, has said the Israeli regime enacts an apartheid regime. Beth Selim divides the way Israel apartheid works into four areas. Land. Israel works to Judaize the entire area, treating land as a resource chiefly meant to benefit the Jewish population. Since 1948, Israel has taken over 90% of the land within the Green Line and built hundreds of communities for the Jewish population. Citizenship. Jews living anywhere in the world, their children and grandchildren and their spouses, are entitled to Israeli citizenship. In contrast, Palestinians cannot immigrate to Israel-controlled areas, even if they, their grandparents, or their great-grandparents, their parents, were born and lived there. Israel makes it difficult for Palestinians who lived in one of the units in control to obtain status in another, and has enacted legislation that prohibits granting Palestinians who marry Israelis status within the Green Line. Freedom of movement. Israeli citizens enjoy freedom of movement in the entire area of control by Israel, with the exception of the Gaza Strip and may enter and leave the country freely. Palestinian subjects, on the other hand, require a special Israeli-issued permit to travel between the units, and sometimes inside them, and exit abroad also requires Israeli approval. Political participation. Palestinian citizens of Israel may vote and run for office, but leading politicians consistently undermine the legitimacy of Palestinian political representatives. The roughly 5 million Palestinians who live in the occupied territories, including East Jerusalem, cannot participate in the political system that governs their, that governs their lives and determines their future. They are denied other political rights as well, including freedom of speech and association. Again. This is the Israeli human rights organization, Betselem. This is not Rashida Tlaib. I was born in New York City. My great-grandparents and family before them were from Eastern Europe. I could move to Israel today, buy a house, get a job, travel around with no problem. So could Jake Tapper and Jonathan Greenblatt. But a Palestinian like Rashida Tlaib can't even visit her family home in what is now Israel. This demographic tension is recognized by Israeli officials and politicians who have described their own country as an apartheid state. Former Attorney General Michael Ben-Yair wrote in 2002, we established an apartheid regime in the occupied territories immediately following their capture. That oppressive regime exists to this day. Zahava Galon, former chair of Israel's Meretz party, said in 2006, Israel was relegated to the level of an apartheid state. In 2007, Israel's former education minister, Shulamit Aloni, wrote, the state of Israel practices its own quite violent form of apartheid within the native Palestinian population. In 2008, former environment minister Yossi Sarid said, what acts like apartheid is run like apartheid and harasses like apartheid is not a duck, it is apartheid. In 2015, former Mossad chief Mayir Dagan said that then-President Netanyahu's policies are leading to either a binational state or an apartheid state. Even Israel's prime ministers have used the A-word. In a recently published 1976 interview, assassinated Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin said, if we don't want to get to apartheid, I don't think it's possible to contain over the long term a million and a half Arabs inside a Jewish state. In 2007, yet another prime minister 
Ehud Olmeret warned, if the day comes when the two-state solution collapses and we face a South African-style struggle for equal voting rights, then as soon as that happens, the state of Israel is finished. Well, Israel isn't finished, but they do face a South African-style struggle. Prime Minister Ehud Barak said in 2010, as long as in this territory west of the Jordan River, there's only one political entity called Israel is going to be either non-Jewish or non-democratic. If this block of millions of Palestinians cannot vote, that will be an apartheid state. But there is no other standard more universally respected in defining apartheid, not the UN, not the International Criminal Court, not human rights organizations, not Israeli prime ministers, than the people of South Africa who lived under the system of apartheid. After all, apartheid is an Afrikaans word. It means apartness. It was the official policy in South Africa from 1948 to 1994, allowing white South Africans in the minority to rule over and discriminate against the vast majority of black South Africans. The definitions from the United Nations and the International Criminal Court come from their experiences. In 1997, Nelson Mandela said, the UN took a strong stand against apartheid, and over the years, an international consensus was built, which helped to bring an end to this iniquitous system. But we know too well that our freedom is incomplete without the freedom of the Palestinians. In 2013, Desmond Tutu recalled being struck by the similarities between what he experienced in apartheid South Africa and what he observed in Israel. I have visited the occupied Palestinian territories and have witnessed the humiliation of Palestinians at Israeli military checkpoints, the inhumanity that won't let ambulances reach the injured, farmers tend their land, or children attend school. This treatment is familiar to me and the many black South Africans who were corralled and harassed by the security forces of the apartheid government. Listen to South Africa's Minister for International Relations, Naledi Pandor, addressing the United States General Assembly just this past week. While we work to address contemporary conflicts, we should not ignore long-standing conflicts, such as that of the people of Palestine, which has been on the United Nations agenda throughout the seven decades of existence of this organization. We cannot ignore the words of the former Israeli negotiator at the Oslo talks, Daniel Levy, who addressed the UN Security Council recently and referred to the increasingly weighty body of scholarly, legal, and public opinion that has designated Israel to be perpetrating apartheid in the territories under its control. To my fellow Jews, to my friends in the Democratic Party who want to support Israel and think of themselves as progressive, it is important to look at what Israeli law today does, what the lived experiences of Palestinians today mean as defined under international law, and what our friends from South Africa have long pointed out. But we should not stop there. South Africans didn't just define apartheid, they dismantled it. Instead of attacking Rashida Tlaib for her candor, her critics should ask themselves how Israeli apartheid could be dismantled. What would a post-apartheid Israel look like? Lashana Tova. Hmm. Uh, I 
find that very interesting that uh, Rashida Tlaib would not be able to visit. Uh, it's her family's home yeah. because it's in, and that's because it's in an occupied What's area. What's now Israel. Right. And she's not allowed the right of return. What does that mean? Well, basically, the right of return is the thing that allows any Jew, uh, meaning anyone with one Jewish grandparent, to return to their rightful home of Israel. Mm -hmm. But the Palestinians who were uh, displaced, evicted from their homes uh, during the founding of Israel have no such rights. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a real demographic imperative that Israel's working with, which is they're trying to uh, Judaize the entire country, which is why they're so supportive of settlements. They really want to drive Palestinians out, push them into ghettos, push them into the Gaza Strip, which is basically an, has been declared an open air prison, uh, prison, uh, open air concentration camp uh, by several human rights organizations hmm. for the just inhumane uh, ways that they're treated. Hmm. Uh, it's a, hor a horrible and difficult problem. Right. Obviously, I think many many people, many of us, support a kind of you know, two, there should be right. two states for, yeah. there should be a state for Palestinian people and for Israeli people. We can't, you know, go back and undo the history of the founding of Israel. Like, that's just not a realistic option at this point. But, uh, but you know, a, a, a regime where both groups are able to live in peace and have self-determination and have self-governance right. um, should happen. Yeah, and I think that also the idea that Jonathan Greenblatt just gets to dismiss uh, Rashida Tlaib and others as anti-Semitic is really problematic, because that in itself is anti-Semitic in some ways, because it conflates criticism of Zionism with anti-Semitism, which conflates being a Jew with being a supporter of Israel. There's an, I mean, this, we don't have time to get into this, but there's even a Jewish tradition of anti-Zionism. Jews were not all in support of going to Israel for many reasons. Mm. And they're Jews today that are against the occupation. So Jonathan Greenblatt and AIPAC do not speak for most Jews. Mm. Well, Katie, thank you very much for shedding some light on that. And we will have more Rising right after this. Stacey Abrams stirred up conversation on abortion late last week. Let's watch. There is no such thing as a heartbeat in six weeks. It is a manufactured sound designed to convince people that men have the right to take control of a woman's body away from her. Abrams received major backlash over her allegations, and outrage ensued after Planned Parenthood allegedly altered its definition of what happens during weeks five, six, five through six of pregnancy. Before heartbeat gate, Planned Parenthood said that basic beating heart and circulatory systems develop during this time. However, internet sleuths spotted a change to the definition that now reads a part of the embryo starts to show cardiac activity. It sounds like a heartbeat on an ultrasound, but it's not a fully formed heart. It's the earliest stage of the heart developing. Yeah, so I was looking at this, uh, people were talking about this on social media. It looks like the conservatives are just correct. Really? <laughs> like they just change. I mean, it, well, oh, about changing. You know what? It? What policy that uh, that suggests is you know whatever people can debate that. But I think sure. if you're if you're pro-choice and you think um, abortion should be legal at that stage of pregnancy. I think you yes. you can think that, but you have to concede that there is activity. I mean, now we're kind of now we're using euphemisms. Now we're dancing right. around. Well, it's not a heartbeat. It's cardiac 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 activity. Cardiac activity. It sounds like a heartbeat, but right. it's not technically a there's heartbeat. There's electrical. Oh, we're being a little cute here. Well, there's a, yeah. There's so there's I mean, a, a heartbeat a, is electrical, electrical activity in the cardiac tissue. 
but it doesn't Sounds like a constitute a heartbeat. But well, I mean, <laughs> but it, it's also a question of, of framing, right? Like obviously yeah. hearts are very, connote a lot of emotion or evoke, I should say, a lot of emotion and, you know, heart-shaped things mm. on Valentine's Day and, you know. Well, yeah. Heart. Look, I, I, uh, I support, um, I, I'm sort of a moderate right. on abortion. Yeah. I would have it legal at that stage sure. of pregnancy. Um, I, I've said on the show that I think the, the approach they take in, like, pure countries in Europe, the right. 12 to 14 weeks, seems like a perfectly reasonable policy to, to my eye. Maybe we would have it be slightly different. Maybe there can be exceptions later. But, right. you know, that and that is what the Supreme Court decision allows for states to have that regime. So I'm kind of fine with that. This, yeah, I, I, would, I would allow it. Um, I mean, I would like to empower people to have choices other than abortion, to have access to birth control, et cetera, you know, all sorts of things so we can have as few abor abortions as possible, like safely and rare seems fine to me. I don't know why we had to throw that out, but you do have to concede that that's the that's the that's that uh, you sound anti. It's anti science almost right, to yeah. pretend that that's just not what the reality. Well, blood is there. flow begins at week four. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. Look, it, it's it's it, it cells are are organizing themselves right, yeah. into a human being over a process that takes up to nine mm -hmm. months, and it is a more developed. Person, thing, entity, after three weeks, yeah. after six weeks, sure, after course, ten right, weeks, yeah. after it's just right. and, and at what stage do does that entity's you know rights right to exist um, uh, uh, take Trump, precedence yeah. over the rights of the entity? In, in, that it resides with the it. Host, like, this is a, this is, I mean, it's a tough, it's a, this is why this question is, yeah, I think, it, legitimately yeah. hard for people. Right. It is a, there's nothing, there's nothing else like this in, in all of nature and all the world. You normally, you can just adjudicate property right. rights. Is this your property? Then you can do what you want. If it's not, you can't. If, are right. you trespassing there? Well, then you have to leave. You don't get to be killed. You just leave. Right. We have a unique property rights dispute where where an entity that will be a living breathing human being with just as many just as much rights as anyone else is coming into existence inside someone else and how do you how do we, yeah it, it, like it's yeah. tough yeah it's legitimately tough. i mean i do think that uh it's i mean yeah and the the cardiac tissue does start pumping the blood yeah. at week around week six yes yeah, so that sounds like a heartbeat flow. Yeah, about week six. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I do think, though, that, you know, this is a hard uh, issue to, to deal with and to talk about. But, of course, a lot of people who are making this argument about the heartbeat, the fetal heartbeat, don't care about, like, the beating hearts of people who are alive. Oh, you mean this is the right, the idea that, well, if you care so much about life, why, yeah. why don't you support policy? Yeah, and, or, or why not support, well, why not the support the right of a woman and her doctor to decide? Because there are cases, obviously, when a woman's life, I mean, there's that issue of policy, sure. but there's also people should be erring on the side of making sure a woman doesn't die. Absolutely, right. And I have no desire whatsoever right. to really intervene or have the state intervene on complicated yeah. medical decisions, et cetera. So I get it. Um, we want to switch gears to another viral clip. Let's abort that topic. Sale <laughs> I'm sorry. Wow. Salesforce CEO Mark Benioff. That's fine. We can, we can have some humor here. He reiterated his support of employees seeking abortion, specifically in states like Indiana, declared that tech giant would leave Republican-led states that enforce an abortion ban. Let's watch. We actually just said if you're going to discriminate against our employees, we're not going to be able to set up shop there. 
And when we said that, 200 other companies the next day, the largest companies in the United States, all said, we agree, we have to support our LGBTQ communities as well. Look, we have to be for equality. We have to be for dignity. We have to be for the equality and dignity of every human being. And if you're not for equality and dignity, then, you know, this is not something that I can work with, and we're going to have to exit your city or your state, just as we have in many places. I'm confused as to why he's talking about an abortion policy. Why does that have a discriminatory I or think disproportionate it's impact on LGBTQ people? I think he's talking about a whole suite. I wondered if we're just go we're going again the uh, with the ACLU route of saying abortion restrictions are particular. Remember that tweet they had that was how how abortion in, in particular impacts. Was, they listed minorities and they right. had the LGBT community. It, 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 it significantly impacts women. Yeah, people have children. <laughs> not, not, right. Not is that what he's saying? Is he community. saying that it impacts? Oh, like I thought he was maybe know. referring to like the some other or just some other conservative uh, policies. Yeah. But it's yeah. well, look, that's fine. You yeah. don't like the policies of state? Exit headquarters somewhere else. Move somewhere else. Of course, we're seeing a lot of the opposite phenomenon that uh, many businesses, especially in the tech sector, don't like the not the social policies or the policies relating to discrimination or, or abortion. They don't like the, 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 uh, the climate for business in places like the state of California, and they're moving to red states. Right. So, uh, so I don't know. They, can, they could headquarter in, in, uh, in, if I had my own state, that would have a very uh, permissive, a very libertarian social policy with, with, it, that would be extremely hands-off in telling people how they live their lives or how they conduct yeah. themselves Robbie personally. Stan. Ro Robbie, Robbie Stan. Stan will be a, it will not be like the other stands. Yeah. It will be very permissive yeah, yeah. on social issues, and then also it will be on economic issues. There will, not, there will be like... There'll be no taxes. Right. There'll be Katie no Stan, regulation. Katie Stan will have some taxes. Taxes yeah, and regulation. Yeah. But we could maybe we can have an open border yeah, policy. Yeah, we can. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. You can yeah. come back and forth yeah. between Katie Stan and Robbie Stan. Definitely. Um, everybody from Katie right Stan. Right of return for both ways. Absolutely. On like yep. Israel. Yeah, yeah. This is a two-state solution that two will actually solution. work. Two-state solution. Yeah, we just solved work. it. We just figured it out. Yep. For uh, right for secular Jews and, uh, and Italian, Italian Americans. People, Italian yes. Americans. All right. More rising after this. The mysterious death of a 22-year-old Iranian woman sparked outrage all over Iran, leading to violent protests. Iran's so-called morality police arrested Marsa Amini in Tehran a week ago for not properly wearing her hijab or headscarf, which is mandatory for women there. She later died in their custody. In a strong show of a tour de force, women in Iran took to the streets in defiance of their government, cutting off their hair, burning their hijabs, and even taking down posters of the supreme leader, the Ayatollah Khomeini. Iran has been left in unrest as the ongoing anti-government protests have led to at least seven deaths so far. Here to discuss the future for women in the Islamic nation is an Iranian-American activist pushing for regime change. There. Maryam Mermasadegi, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So what are women in Iran demanding? Women are in, in Iran, men in Iran, everybody is demanding a wholesale removal of the regime. Um, it's uh, Iran revolution. Uh, protests are being sustained on the streets throughout the country, small towns, large cities, everywhere. 
Um, labor strikes are uh, expanding and are uh, going to be sustaining the, the street protests. Um, unmistakably, the slogans, the momentum, um, the will of the people is for regime change, revolution. The United States government, U.S. lawmakers must come to realize that the uh, nuclear deal that is being pursued in Vienna is one, not going to happen, <laughs> or it, if it does happen, it is uh, uh, contrary or um, at the cost of, of U.S. interests. I mean, more and more Democrats in Congress are coming to that realization. Joe Biden himself must know that his team has not been successful in Vienna. What, but what costs uh, the United States and what costs the people of Iran by pursuing that uh, deal is the appeasement of the regime. And if the United States reverses course now, gets on the right side of history, um, backs away from the nuclear negotiations, gets on the side of the Iranian people, it can have, United States can have a partner um, in a new democratic government in Iran that is going to be ushering in peace for the Middle East and is going to set back uh, the evils of Islamist um, terrorism throughout the world. This is a historic opportunity for the United States. Yes, certainly. And, and you know, I, of course, ideally, um, I would want and so many would want uh, the people of Iran to live under uh, live under self-government, under a government that is respectful of individual rights and liberties and toleration and does not, you know, force Islamic extremism on them. It absolutely lets women go into the streets, not wear hijabs, do whatever they want, have the same rights they have here or in other Western countries. But then the question becomes, and we have this long history of, of intervening, intervening militarily, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, etc., where things have not gone well, uh, where, where, so, so, okay, so what is, what is different about the situation? Um, and, and, you know, what, given that we don't want any, we, we simply do not, the people of America don't want another, you know, military commitment, uh, one with a, a nuclear, potentially nuclear power, what should be done? Military commitment. The Iranian people are out on the streets waging a revolution for their future. There's no need for a military intervention. There's no need for uh, the United States to do anything except to get out of the way of the Iranian people by pursuing a deal that requires daily appeasement of the regime and handing it over billions of dollars in cash. The United States will sustain this regime when the Iranian people are being very successful in overthrowing it. So what's important here is for the United States just to get out of the way of the Iranian people. And Joe Biden's policy right now is standing in their way. Do most Iranians feel the same way, though, about the nuclear deal? Well, most Iranians want to get rid of their regime, and they see that the nuclear deal is going to sustain the regime. Yeah, look, I, I get that, but it, it seems very da daunting, the idea that you know there will be a, a revolution in the streets and then this will happen, and then you know something will replace it that is more acceptable um, to the U.S. or to the people. I mean, look, that, that's a great aspiration. We hope that happens. Um, ideally, that would happen. It would be peaceful, et cetera. 
Um, but it's still, it's very hard to imagine it actually happening. And in the meantime, you know, we want to, we, we already made an agreement with Iran, and then we broke right. our word on it. We backtracked it. Not them. We did that. Right. Uh, the, the Trump administration did that. So I can understand, you know, the, Iran's reluctance to enter into another agreement um, with us. And isn't our, you know, immediate goal is to, is to have better relations with the government of Iran, you, you know, abusive of human rights though it may be you know we, we're forced to deal in the real world where we have to deal with re regimes that we don't like that have human records rights that we absolutely oppose because we've seen what the alternative is that we can't really just you know force our will on these countries to get them to accept policies that probably all of us would rather they have what what, uh, what will are we forcing on the uh, iranian regime right now we're being silent We've been silent on the human rights abuses. If it wasn't for pressure from the Iranian people, Joe Biden and his team wouldn't even be making statements of rhetorical support. They're still abiding by their plan to um, uh, enter into a nuclear deal with this regime, which will require the United States to hand over the regime billions of dollars, as the Obama administration did. Exactly how are we forcing our will on, uh, other than to keep the regime alive? The only thing that, that the Iranian people want is for the United States and other governments to not get in their way as they're bringing down an evil regime. But does the Iranian economy being sanctioned uh, and nuclear stress help create reform, democratic reform, or does it kind of create more hardlining, hardline response from the government? People aren't looking for reform. When the United States entered the JCPOA, it made promises of improved rights and welfare and uh, better uh, economic situation for the Iranian people. Not only didn't that, did, did that not happen, the opposite did, and they came out on the streets. And now we have a super hardliner as president, and Joe Biden still wants to enter a similar actually a worse, a watered-down deal. Yeah, I think the concern, though, is that uh, further isolating the current Iranian government, uh, you know, like, we, you know, we've seen, we're seeing in real time the limits of sanctions and that approach that we might immiserate the people, we might starve the people, we might crash the economy, we might lead to more suffering, but we don't end up dislodging regimes via, via this matter. So I guess that's the, the concern that what Katie's getting at, that it won't even, this approach won't even work. Well, what, what approach exactly? An approach of, of isolating of isolating and immiserating the regime and sanctioning. Well, how has it how has it helped to give them billions of dollars? Well, where have sanctions helped? In what countries? Well, sanctions, sanctions against a regime that abuses the rights of its people and expands uh, terror throughout the world are one of the few mechanisms that democracies have to hold those regimes back. The alternative is war. What do you suggest? Yeah, look, I don't want to give billions of dollars to foreign governments of any kind. I don't, right. I don't think we should. The people's, the American taxpayers' dollars should be spent um, on, on any regime. So I take your point. This, I guess, is money, this is money in exchange for, you know, for a promise of, uh, of, of a, you know, a goal we're trying to achieve, not just like a, 
a donation to them, but uh, you're, we're giving right. you this in exchange for you know you playing ball in terms of the diplomacy we want, in terms of the, the nuclear policy we want. Um, yeah, but handing them handing them over a lot billions of dollars hasn't hasn't stopped their nuclear program. Mm -hmm. The only thing that set the nuclear program back is sabotage and espionage and assassinations. Uh, not only has uh, the JCPOA not uh, controlled the nuclear program. Uh, the regime has actually expanded, and, uh, and it just uh, the only thing that the JCPOA did was embolden the regime. Let's not forget that while the JCPOA was in effect, the uh, regime um, was responsible for the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of innocent people in Syria. Hmm. Well, Miriam, we so appreciate yeah, you joining you. us and giving your perspective on this issue. Um, yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thank you. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Former U.S. Secretary of State and Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton compared former President Donald Trump's rally to a Hitler rally and seemingly suggested that they used a salute similar to that of Nazis. Let's watch. You know, trying to figure out how did people get basically um, drawn in by Hitler. How did that happen? And I'd watch newsreels and I'd see this guy standing up there ranting and raving and people shouting and raising their arms. I thought, what's happened to these people? Why did they believe that? You saw the rally in Ohio the other night. Trump is there ranting and raving for uh, more than an hour and you have these rows of young men with their arms raised. Yeah, so I saw the footage uh, that people have been talking about regarding this rally. It's not; a, it's just not a Nazi salute. People raise their arms. It's not a Nazi salute. Um, so that's <laughs> some misinformation. Yeah. I wonder if the misinformation czars who run our society and want to prevent you from right. saying anything wrong are going to fact check that one. I'm sure they'll get around to that any time yeah. now. It's, um, it's never really a good look to like play around with facts when you're just trying, just yeah. so you can call someone a well, Nazi. And, uh, liberal, or Nazi the, -like. the liberals are in the media, mainstream media, people are obsessed with the like hand gesture. Remember the okay yeah, sign thing? Right. We're like, yes, it is true, technically, that some far right, fascist, alt right people use the okay, okay sign, yeah. you know, this, this sign to mean, to signal far right fact. Right, now I'm gonna be clipped and yeah. accused of doing it. I am demonstrating it, I'm not using it. Right. Um, some people do that. Now, 90, probably, I mean, I'm just making up sure, a number yeah, here, yeah. but 97% of the people who make the okay sign have no it, idea right. that a small number of people associate with Nazism and are not doing it for that reason. Right. So if you're just like, take random yeah. photos of people doing it, it's not why they're doing right. it. And right. then and also, of the people doing it with some knowledge, they're actually doing it like to troll and right. annoy people, yeah. the, the me mainstream media liberals who think it's a size. So yeah. small number, very right. small I mean, number. obviously the Zig Heil is different, but what yeah. you're saying, and I haven't seen the footage, but you're saying that they did not have not the, the right arm Heil. raised up no. with their hand like that. And, right, no. there's a certain, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to do no, that yeah, one on that one, because, because that, that one, one is be. known, a known entity. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. If you're doing that willfully, and yeah. I'm right, I'm sure Richard Spencer type people yeah, have in the right. past been yeah, done that at rallies, that, yeah. uh, but uh, you know, allegedly I don't know if he specifically did, but that would not be out of character for him or his movement. Yeah, I mean for his previous. Now I think actually even now Richard Spencer has. Have you heard that story no. that he is 
disassociated himself oh, from alt-right fascism. Huh. I think that came to light because um, he signed up for a dating profile, and uh, someone was like, "You're you're that? Are you that Richard right. Spencer?" And he he admitted to the media that that's, yes, that is him, but he doesn't want to be reformed. associated with that. Right, at least former. for dating. Wow. Yeah, I, it's interesting. Anyway, uh, yeah, going back to Hillary Clinton. She like, he kept asking me to go to German restaurants. It was really weird. <laughs> or Austrian. I don't want to go. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't want to go to. I have a lot of. Uh, we've been talking about my Italian heritage yeah. on the show, but I, I also have German ancestry. Oh, okay. um, but uh, yeah, I much prefer the Italian yeah, cuisine. It was raised on Italian cooking. Uh, as for Hillary Clinton, look, she has every right to criticize yeah, right. Trump saying ridiculous things at rallies. I'm sure the things he says were ridiculous, but it, it's her kind of pathological need to explain her loss in terms right. of like, right? Oh, this is just like when Hitler came yeah, to exactly. power, or it's Russia's fault, or those kinds yeah. of things. It's never misogyny, never her fault. Bernie Bros. Yeah. Misogyny. It's Russia. It's the rise of fascism. It's not people just not liking her. Right. And of course, if you want to actually look at what she brought up, which is how does someone like Hitler rise to power? I mean, there were uh, economic conditions that made people much more uh, disposed to listening to a demagogue like, like Hitler. So, of course, like the America is already great again is actually a great way, I think, to foster kind of right-wing radicalism hmm. because people feel like they're not being heard. Oh, when they're being told by Democrats yes. that, what do you mean, America's right. already yeah. great, and that's not the experience people, some right. people are having yes. due to their economic I think it's, it's one of the things that made people turn to, to Trump. Now, again, I'm not saying he's Hitlerian. I think it's a pretty dangerous uh, comparison to make. But to the extent of why demagogues are more or less uh, kind of successful, of course, you know, the Treaty of Versailles played a big role. That humiliation mm -hmm. played a big role in, in Hitler's rise. The economic devastation in Germany played a big role, too. So, but she never, but it's funny. I mean, I bring that up, I guess, because these are the same people who laugh off the idea of economic anxiety playing any role. But if you actually want to use Hitler as a teachable moment, that is one of the big things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But right, the mainstream media hates when you say right. that. Right, and also. It was all, and of course, it was some, Substantially about racism, a lot of racism, yeah. obviously involved in the Holocaust. Yeah. We should not. Right. You can't nobody have that is ignoring that. Yeah, that, that this was a right. racist regime yes. that came to power and and annihilated an entire culture, ethnicity, race, etc. Yes, right. No, no one is saying that's not that it's the economic case. stuff alone, right? But the question is, what makes uh, what environments make this that much more conducive, right, to things like. Uh, the leader like that. And also, I mean, Hillary, do you really have to do this again? You already did the basket of deplorables. It's like, do you want to just write off? I guess she does. She does. That, that's All how she legitimately feels about right. it. Um, right. Because then she doesn't, like you strategy. said, there's nothing, she did nothing wrong. Right. It's just all these pathological Or it's Russia. Or it's people were misled. Right. People were tricked by misinformation. Yes. People were duped. It wasn't, it, it's like, I mean, she comes it close to, to and, and probably, and I think actually just has in the past done the thing you're not allowed to do. You're not supposed to do on social media. You can get in trouble for of denying the legitimacy of the election results. Right. She, she flirts yeah, with that all the yeah. time. She, you know, she said it's Tulsi Gabbard's fault. She right. said it's it, her insistence that it's nefarious Russian influence hoodwinked people, prevented people from from voting. Who they, they would have voted for her, but they right. were. But because something illegitimate happened, yeah. they didn't. Has nothing to do with her like record high unfavorability ratings. Or like not not giving enough speeches in Michigan. Michigan. Yeah, right. Well, Putin, yeah. Putin closed down the airport Putin, in right. Michigan and Wisconsin. Putin got a hold of her speaking schedule, yeah. at, you know, added a couple more uh, stops in states she was already going right, to win yeah. by record margins, and uh, said, no, don't, don't go to Pennsylvania. Yeah. 
whatever yeah, get, you do. Get Hillary. diverted. Yeah. Niet, um, niet Pennsylvania. Niet Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, which is, uh, it's, so, it's just so funny. The obsession with that as the explanation. Time and time again. And then she, she still keeps talking about it. She still keeps talking about it. And you're not supposed to do that. Uh, again, the, the, Trump's claims about an illegitimate election, which are false, right. uh, are, are, are constantly derided, in, uh, obsessively derided by mainstream institutions, by the media, by tech platforms, etc. And not just derided, but it, like they try to criminalize it. Yeah, they come right virtually criminalized. Yeah. yeah. So, so for her to continue to do that. Uh, it's, I'm not saying it's the same thing, but to call into question her own loss is just, it's so rich. It's yeah, so rich. It really is. You can't make it up. Well, we will have an infinite amount of rising next. Stay tuned. We're getting a little cute here. <laughs> See you in a minute. Yesterday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that his troops are seeing positive results as Ukrainian troops make gains in several regions, following a massive counteroffensive launched on Russian-occupied areas. However, Zelensky warned that a threat of nuclear war is still on the table. During an interview with CBS's Face the Nation, Zelensky said of Putin, he wants to scare the whole world, adding that nuclear war could be a reality. Jake Sullivan, Meanwhile, the U.S. has privately warned Russia that they will face catastrophic consequences if it deploys nuclear weapons in Ukraine, according to National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. But just last week, Putin publicly acknowledged that Ukraine and Russia were close to a peace settlement before the West intervened. Let's watch. And I want to say that publicly for the first time, after the start of the special military operation, also at the Istanbul negotiations, um, uh, there was a very positive reaction to our proposals concerning ensuring the security of Russia. But it was obvious that the West was not happy with a peaceful decision. So after reaching certain compromises, they effectively were given a direct um, order to undermine the negotiations. So is peace still possible? According to journalist Aaron Mate, despite the opposing narrative, it's not too late to pursue diplomacy. Aaron Mate himself joins us to discuss further. Thanks for joining us, Aaron. Good to be here. So what is your argument for why peace is still possible? Well, look, the fact that Putin claims, whether he's right or not, that there was a peace settlement and that it was wrecked by the West shows that there's an opportunity here. I mean, if Putin's telling the truth, then that peace option could be revived. And if he's lying, the West could call his bluff and say, let's have diplomacy. But what is the West doing? You, you just heard Jake Sullivan talk about how the U.S. has to keep fighting Russia, uh, continue with the strategy of sending more and more weapons. How is that conducive to peace at a time when, as everybody acknowledges, nuclear threats are escalating? The fact is, Putin's comment uh, did not come with any evidence, but he wasn't the first to make it. The claim that a peace deal was close actually originates with sources close to Vladimir Zelensky. That claim first surfaced in Ukrainian media in May when Ukrainian media reported that Russia and Ukraine were close to a deal, but Boris Johnson, the then British prime minister, came to Kiev and told Zelensky not to negotiate and that if you do, we will not back you up. 
That was further corroborated by Fiona Hill, who's a former White House expert, who said there was a deal tentatively reached. So there are signs that diplomacy was possible and close to fruition. There's no reason why it shouldn't be tried right now, especially at a time when more people are being sent off to die and the nuclear threat is escalating. Yeah, let's pick up that threat a little bit. Aaron, why aren't people in the national security apparatus and frankly in the mainstream media more alarmed by the increasing likelihood of a nuclear of a catastrophic nuclear confrontation? And look, I get that it's not a it's not a strong possibility. It's it, it remains thankfully very unlikely, but like look, a 1% chance of this is not, it, like, that's not acceptable. It, it's, it, it, could be, it could be the death of our species, it's bad. Um, so why is this not, why, you know, people are just kind of going, oh, yeah, oh, we have more reason to be worried. Are, are people kidding? Are they not, like, what, what don't they get about this? You're identifying the sick experiment that, that this entire proxy war has been. Yes, uh, it's unlikely that we're going to have nuclear Armageddon. But the problem is our leaders have been willing to flirt with the risk. They've been willing to increase the chances, which is just insane, uh, especially given that this war could have easily been avoided had there been serious negotiations before. And I've, you know, there's a long record of this, but I don't think the U.S. was ever interested in pursuing diplomacy with Russia in any kind of meaningful way that could address Russia's serious security concerns, no matter what you think of Russia's decision to invade, which I think personally was illegal and wrong. But yes, I think the goal, as articulated by Lloyd Austin, of weakening Russia and using Ukraine to fight Russia to the last person, as Lindsey Graham put it, supersedes avoiding the risk of nuclear war uh, from the point of view of U.S. officials. And your piece, uh, which is up at your Substack, and I really recommend it, you quote uh, or you cite David Ignatius, the journalist, and he is arguing that this provides this moment provides an off ramp for uh, for Biden and Putin potentially. Can you expand on that? Yes, David Ignatius, who has sources very well placed inside the U.S. intelligence community, uh, wrote a very interesting article when I think he was the only mainstream U.S. journalist who even acknowledged. Putin's rather extraordinary claim that the U.S. and its allies wrecked a peace agreement between Russia and Ukraine. And Ignatius not only noted this, but said that Putin's comment offers an off-ramp. It shows that Putin is at least rhetorically open to negotiations. So why not seize that moment? And in fact, Ignatius compared it to the message uh, privately sent by Khrushchev to Kennedy that helped end the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was you know, the last time that the US, that the world faced such a dire nuclear threat. But right now, in this, you know, modern day Cuban Missile Crisis, there is no high level diplomacy that we can see, at least publicly, going on. And that is just criminal. Now, I should say, uh, in fairness to the US government, I did write to uh, two separate US agencies, the State Department and the National Security uh, Council, to get their response to Putin's claim. The NSC uh, told me, actually, that broadly, Putin's claim that the U.S. discouraged peace talks was inaccurate. Uh, they, they did say that. Uh, the State Department didn't actually address Putin's claim. But no one specifically rebutted what he said about these specific peace talks in the spring. And I just think right now, no matter what happened back then many months ago, no matter what opportunities were sabotaged, whether Putin's exaggerating or not, it doesn't matter. The point is now any opportunity possible for diplomacy needs to be seized.
Right, because we're coming on the wake of some obvious, some Ukrainian successes militarily. Uh, it's you know, their country; they're defending their country. The you know support for doing so is 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 great. But, but now is the time, isn't it? I mean, now is always the time, obviously, for diplomacy. But. Putin, you know, the, the risk to to Putin's government, to you know his legitimacy in Russia, is uh, is is threatened to some degree by these losses. Maybe not, you know, I'm, I'm not naive. I'm not saying he's about to like fall from power or something, but he has to. He politically, it's in his best interest, likely, to find a way out of this conflict. It's obviously in the Ukrainians' interest, and it's in our interest because we don't want to keep funding this thing. There's no support for doing it at home. So you would think that this, these are three involved forces who all have incentive to have this be the end. Some fate, maybe some face-saving measure for Putin, and then the end of this conflict. And we should do that. So what's getting in the way of that happening? I think what's getting in the way is the uh, imperative of proxy war goals, the determination by some people in the White House and State Department to bleed Russia for as long as possible, to extend this war for as long as they can. Because, again, the stated goal, as articulated by Lloyd Austin, was to weaken Russia, not to defend Ukraine, but to weaken Russia. And if you uh, extend Russia in a long proxy war, just as the U.S. did to the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, you can achieve that goal. But look, as you say, there are opportunities here for everyone to save face. Ukraine did achieve some battlefield success in Kharkiv. They routed uh, Russian forces from thousands of miles of territory. And overall, Ukraine has done far better militarily than most people, including myself, expected. So there's plenty that Ukraine can say, can point to in saying, we defended our country and now it's time to end this war before more territory is lost. And even David Ignatius, who we talked about before, this, you know, uh, very closely tied uh, columnist uh, uh, in terms of sources with the intelligence community, says that Kiev needs a reality check about its battlefield prospects. That's an awareness on Ignatius's part that these battlefield successes uh, are probably not guaranteed for Ukraine because they're facing just a far bigger foe. And no matter how many weapons the U.S. can pour in, you know, which admittedly has made a difference in Ukraine's favor, that cannot continue uh, for the long term, especially since so many Ukrainian forces are dying. So now is a great time to pursue any possible off-ramp and declare victories with the successes that Ukraine has already had. Yeah, absolutely. Aaron, thank you so much for joining Thanks us. So we much. appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And stay tuned for more Rising right after this. Questa è la ragione per la quale oggi noi facciamo tanta paura. Questa è la ragione per la quale oggi questo appuntamento fa tanta paura. Perché noi non vogliamo essere dei numeri, noi siamo qui per dire che noi non siamo dei numeri, noi difenderemo il valore della persona umana, di ogni singola persona umana, perché ognuno di noi ha un codice genetico unico e irripetibile. E questo piaccia o no a del sacro. Lo difenderemo, difenderemo Dio, la patria e la famiglia che fanno tanto schifo a qualcuno. Lo faremo per difendere la nostra libertà perché noi non saremo mai schiavi e semplici consumatori in balia della speculazione finanziaria. Ecco la nostra missione, ecco perché oggi sono venuta qui. Scrive... That was the new Prime Minister of Italy, Giorgia Maloney, on the world stage following her election victory. And I'm seeing a lot of reaction to that speech online, making it sound like that was basically a Nazi speech, which is not more what Mussol I, heard I think more in Mussolini, it. Right, than, Mussolini than Nazi. Yeah. Sorry, I still had Hillary Clinton on the mind. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. Look, I get, I, I gather from doing a little research here that she is part of a political party that is 
well to the right that has origins in Italian fascism, although she claims and others in the party claim it has shed all those influences. It is well to the right and even to the right of you know the other populist right parties, right. Uh, Silvio Berlusconi's and the other one, that have now formed a ruling coalition, these, these uh, conservative parties. Hers, fine, I accept uh, that this is what we're being told, is more outside the mainstream, it is akin to uh, Marine Le Pen right. in France or Viktor Orban in, um, in uh, Hungary. Hungary. So fine, I'm sure there are a lot of policies that she has that I would disagree with on immigration, on other issues. But I, I mean, what did you make of it? I, I don't think it. From what I was, I mean, she was she's saying, I mean, she's giving political speech type things about how we're going to defend our people, we're going to defend liberty. You know, she was she was signaling to some kind of uh, you know opposition to sort of progressive or woke ideas about gender, et cetera. Not, I, I don't see where that's like wildly outside of any kind of mainstream. In fact, actually, most not just far right people, but most mainstream people actually also, you know, are not totally on board with what progressives are doing on gender and other subjects. So Yeah, I mean, I think the, she's definitely speaking to a uh, kind of code for, you know, we'll defend the country, we'll defend God. Uh, I think that that in, in countries like Italy and Spain are often affili affiliated with neo-fascists, uh, or in the case of, well, actually, in both of them, uh, actual fascist parties. Yeah, we want to be careful, right? It's not, it's only... You know, 70-ish years ago now, 80-ish years ago, where the fascism was a real presence yeah, in Europe, in, in these countries. Um, yeah. yeah, so totally right to be wary of it. Right. But, um, but there's also a danger of calling everything sure. fascism, which I know you know about because you talk about that right. too. Um, especially when they're making speeches that are, those are remarks that I, to my ears fit in with even the political moment, the political right here and in other places, which is objecting to, um, you know, to, again, gender, wokeness, et cetera. So I, I don't know. I, it, there's the danger of overreaching and saying, oh, yeah, you know, fascism has won. This is chill. Like, that's the, like, the tweet associated with this video that came across our, yeah. our feed was something like, oh, my gosh, this is chilling. Like, wow. Which, I don't know, is it? <laughs> I mean, I think she, apparently she uh, joined the party that was founded right after Mussolini's original party was banned in 45. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's considered by many uh, to be a neo-fascist party. The, it's called the Italian Social Movement. Um, I think that, you know, we should, I would love to have on a guest who's more of an expert in this field. Uh, certainly a lot of people who I respect are saying that she's a neo-fascist, but uh, I'd want to look more into her, her policies. And when she, now when she, I guess, are, are people saying that, you know, when she's talking about uh, financial speculation, yeah. is that like supposed to be code for... Jewish, the Jews, the, Jews. the globalists. That, I think obviously so. That yeah, is I think that that's another way that she's signaling. Yeah, and apparently she's incredibly anti-immigrant, and similar yeah. to the way that uh, that uh, Le Pen is also. Yeah, but she so. later in her her remarks, we only played the first clip yeah. of that, right? She's talking about it was with specific respect to consumerism. That look, I understand how you could read it as uh, anti-Semitic, uh, but it it actually honestly there was even something almost left wing about the way she was phrasing it about the you know the hold that corporations 
have over us, you know, speaking to some of the tech concerns that sure, both people right. on the left and the right have in the U.S. Like, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to whitewash this person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe they are just as bad as they're being described right. on social media. Uh, I, I accept that this person seems is well to the right of the other political parties. And again, I probably disagree with a lot of these policies, including on you know, consumerism, which I don't actually. Right. I, I'm the libertarian. I'm the right, one saying right. no. Is, stuff makes yeah, us better. Yeah, what are you talking away, about? Yeah. Consume away. Right. So I'm. I'm not saying. This I mean, but I think we see that as sympathy to her. But. When you said it sounds left, I mean, I think that's what a lot of right-wing populism does, right? It kind of has a similar critique, but then the direction it goes in is different. So they're like, yeah, there's capitalism and speculation and consumerism, and the answer is to, and then the left will say, you know, uh, go after greed or about uh, capitalism, and then the right is like. And the that, which is why we have to close our borders. Right. You know. Right. So. Fascism. You know, despite being a, a, a sort of a reality, the fascists would describe themselves as you know they're anti-communist. Yeah. They don't. They hate communists. Um, but then fascist policies end up being a sort of management of the economy um, in, in a. It, it, not in not in the same way that communism right. manages the economy, but it's still a very managed yeah. economy, like with high levels of state control. Usually, not state ownership right. of the means of production of, of the firms, but a high degree of centralization and telling uh, firms what to do, which uh, which yeah. deeply offensive to me right. as a libertarian. I mean, there's they're they're kind of like class class virtue signaling. I would say fascists because mm -hmm. I don't think that they actually control corporations as much as they claim to. Right. Um, but uh, what's interesting is that, you know, she's definitely, as we were saying, she's definitely signaling. And I think that t people of Italy understand this. They read it this way because of the way that, like, Mussolini presented himself and the discourse around the family and God and the country. Um, those things are, are like, signal. And just, I mean, I, I know. But there are things that, like, every politician signals, right? Yeah. In, in the U.S. Got, yeah. It actually, yes. But, um, you have, to, you have to cross a pretty far left line before the politician stops, like talking about God, about God, yeah, right? In yeah. the U.S. context, right? But there's, but it is a little different in Europe because yeah. they are. I mean, it's a complicated discussion. In some ways, they they have more of a separation of church and state. In some ways, they have less of a separation of church and state. It depends. Yeah. It is. It is. It is weird. Yeah, but let's see if she actually does. Like so many people who signal being populist, let's see if she actually does anything about finance. Right. Well, yeah. she is, by the way, the first Italian uh, female prime minister. Girl power, girl boss energy. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know why yeah. are why are uh, why are mainstream glass, Democrats even upset? It's a I girl know. power. The glass ceiling. Uh, media is smearing her. Yes, as I said, as far right Mussolini. Let's watch that. Fiery 45-year-old is comfortable with some of the hallmarks of Italian fascism, like this motto: God, fatherland, and family. And that's clearly a post-fascist party um, with a post-fascist agenda. Uh, Irene Caratelli is a political scientist at Rome's American University. It has the flame uh, yeah, and the flame. symbol of the political party that goes back to the idea of the flame on the grave of Mussolini. The same flame is on Mussolini's grave? Yes. Now it's a historic election also because Georgia Maloney would be Italy's first ever female prime minister. An important glass ceiling, but one that's been overshadowed by her politics. Chris Livesey, CBS News, Rome. It's interesting. Apparently over the years, people have encouraged her to get rid of the flame, and she refuses to. Hmm. Yeah, look, bad optics, lady. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, I don't, you don't have to get rid of the 
pro-God language, but uh, yeah, maybe maybe a different flame. Yeah. They could adopt one of our, obviously there's, you know, the, like flame is a, the Statue of Liberty yeah. fire beacon is an right. icon for sure liberty movements. Yeah, yeah. He'd love that. Yeah. All right. More rising in just a minute. Please stay with us. More than 1,000 migrants have now been bussed out of Texas and into the Chicago metropolitan area by Governor Greg Abbott. That's according to a statement put out by the city. Mayor Lori Lightfoot hit out at the Biden administration for failing to support liberal cities overwhelmed by the growing flow of asylum seekers. Let's watch. If this moment continues for weeks and months, there's going to be there. There has to be more. Uh, there's a finite number of resources that are available uh, through FEMA. We intend to get every single penny that we possibly can. But I meant when I said earlier, if monies are going to the state of Texas and they're abdicating the responsibilities that they agreed to <clears throat> to get those monies, those monies need to be reprogrammed and sent to states uh, and cities like Chicago, like New York, um, like uh, uh, Washington, D.C. We need a comprehensive plan from the federal government. And again, we all know what the, the reality is. This is a national problem. It needs a national solution. Um, and we, as cities and states, cannot be left uh, to fend to ourselves. So I think she, now I've been very critical of Lori Lightfoot in the past. I mean, most, uh, most of it on COVID policy and actually some of her own policing policy. Yeah, but you that. probably have been as well. Yeah. That's, I think, you know what, I think she raises some valid points there. Yeah. Um, it, it is a little odd kind of leaving cities and states to fend for themselves on immigration policies. Now, that said, I, I am irritated by the kind of idea that, uh, that has developed among some Team Blue forces or the Martha's Vineyard crowd. They're like, oh, well, these immigrants are just, they want all the immigrants to, come, to be able to come to our country. They, they are totally against the border concerns that, people in Texas, et cetera, are raising. And then they're like outraged that the immigrants are free to move about the cabin, which they are. People seeking asylum right. are now in the country legally until their asylum claims are adjudicated, which could be years from now. And there is no expectation that they stay in Texas. They can, they can go elsewhere in the country. Sure. They can go to places like New York. They can go to places like Chicago. It probably makes more sense for them to do that because there's probably more uh, there's probably more opportunities to connect with people in their community, uh, community that might be able to find them housing or, or jobs, whatever jobs they can do. Of course, that is greatly limited, foolishly limited, uh, limited by their immigration status. I don't know why we wouldn't, if we're going to have these people here, right. why we would not immediately let them work. But, uh, but so, so it's a frustration. You, you can't, like the people coming who came from Europe to Ellis Island, we're not going to stay on Ellis That's Island. Not, yeah, that no would have been very uncomfortable. They didn't necessarily have to stay in New York, right, although yeah. obviously New York became a home to sure. bustling immigrant communities. They, you know, they went right. elsewhere. I mean, I my think, ancestors ended up in Michigan, right? State of Michigan. So sorry about that. Yeah. <laughs> I think that um, that you know the Martha's Vineyard thing is they obviously don't have they're not well resourced for this, right? So I don't think it's just like liberal hypocrisy. I mean, there is a lot of liberal hypocrisy out there. Um, but I do think that, you know, putting people there, uh, what, I guess what I think is so funny about this story is that I don't think they imagine the right-wing governors that they'd, like, help uh, Democratic mayors leverage more, uh, uh, leverage the, the feds for more welfare, mm -hmm. which is a kind of funny uh, yeah. 
thing to yeah, see it is, happening. It is yeah. funny. But, and also, it is true that the, you know, the ghost flights was becoming like, right. oh, what is that? Is that a made-up right-wing thing? No. <laughs> the, the Biden administration puts migrants on buses and planes all the time right. to move them elsewhere. Uh, in, in the project of finding of finding accommodations for these people, because you know, because in this respect, we are a good country that is is treating a lot of people with more decency and respect. Maybe maybe not enough. Maybe we object to some of the policies. I would have a more liberal immigration policy where people could come here yeah. legally rather than streaming across the border through unsafe conditions. But yeah. we are taking these people, and we are making a good faith effort to find housing for them. Um, it, you know, it's a lot better than they were getting in the in the clearly in the countries they were in before they came here because they are coming here for, right. for economic opportunity and security. And uh, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to be like a rah rah patriot sure. American thing, but I mean, and then we, I, are, course, we are doing well by yeah. them. I mean, I, of course, some of our policies created instability. Yeah. That from which they're fleeing, but. Absolutely, yeah. and we should address those policies and sure. end them. I know I had this. I had we had a debate with a. I debated a literal communist. Yeah. Uh, someone just slight, maybe just slightly to your left, but uh, to my right. Or to your right. I mean, you you're the yeah. actual literal communist. Yeah. But um, but I agree, look, I agreed that uh, and and I, he's probably. I don't think he that guest was Nick. That was his yeah. name. He wasn't super familiar with all my political positions, yeah. so he was you know indicting like the the sanctions and everything and the embargo. And people, but I'm against yeah. all those things yeah. anyway. Uh, and I'm very much against what has destabilized our immediate border to the south, um, the, the war on drugs, uh, yeah. which has you know, allowed for the growth of these cartel organizations that traffic in drugs and, and human beings, yeah. they traffic in things that are illegal. Well, if they weren't illegal, that right. would, that totally would agree. shrink the black market. Yeah. For, save uh, a for lot of lives. It would it save, save a lot, lot of lives, lives. And, it's, and it's just not working at actually, yeah. you know, keeping these things out of the um, out of the country anyway. So we should definitely look toward reforming our policies on immigration, on sanctions, on drugs, on so many things. Yeah. But um, but you know, let's we are our, our government is trying to find places for a lot of migrants. Which yeah, although Texas and uh, DeSantis and, and Abbott, not so much. Yeah. Well, yeah. they're I mean they're moving them to yeah, trying other, to find other places for them. Yeah. Right. I mean, they're, you know, they're calling out uh, the, the liberals who are like, yeah, this is great. You know, let them all in. And again, I, I, I do not I do not want to shut down the country to immigration. I, I think yeah. immigrants coming here and work, we have we have jobs. It, uh, it, it's we can't build houses in this country right, right. now because there's not enough uh, labor to do it. Um, we, we need people to come here and work. And if they want to work. And then they should pay taxes or whatever the yeah. appropriate amount of taxes is to pay. They're contributing to society. They can join unions. It's a sure they could join unions, make uh, make you happy, and, uh, and and look, that's that's how we build a stronger, more durable country economy. Um, also, it's not it's just not true. The the concern that many uh, conservatives have that if we let in too many um, immigrants, they're going to like warp our policies in a more Democratic Party direction is turning out to be the biggest right. hoax of all that's time funny, because yeah. so many of these of these migrants um, have right wing social views yeah. uh, or do not like communism. They're fleeing it. Um, some of them like like Trump. It's it's yeah, it's, 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 kind, it's kind it of hysterical. The idea that we like, they're are, not a monolith. No, they're not. They're not a monolith whatsoever. Yeah. Um, the most monolithically opposed to conservative policies are like super affluent, well-educated white people. 
So the people already wow. here who have been here for, for generations, for centuries. So uh, you know, let's let's be honest about what the what like demographic change yeah. represents. It does not necessarily represent uh, a, that there will be a permanent majority for the Democratic Party, yeah. which which is a fear that Republicans have had that has motivated, I think, so much of the recent opposition to immigration. Yeah. So. Definitely. Well, tomorrow on Rising, we will dig into the results of the Italian election uh, even further. It was great to have you with us, Katie. Thanks. And uh, great you'll to be, be back here. in a little bit. So thank you so much. And be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you can find podcasts, etc. And uh, we will talk to you soon. Bye.